Okay, so as we come to Zechariah chapter 9, we're going to come face-to-face with, uh, with some of the most explicit judgment and salvation language in the Old Testament, uh, especially as we start through chapters 10 through 12. Uh, there's going to be widespread disagreement about and debate about whether the, these texts of Zechariah describe the coming of God's kingdom as it happened in Christ when he came uh, in the incarnation and was crucified and resurrected and that led to the movement of his kingdom through the world by the preaching of the gospel um, or whether we're talking about some literal end time battle between futuristic armies that would you know, come against the actual city of Jerusalem. <clears throat> Now, whichever, that's a really simplistic way to explain it, too. So it's a, it's a lot more involved in that. Those that uh, take it, uh, as I do, that it was coming in, in the in, – it's fulfilled in Christ's coming, uh, you know, there, there's a sense in which – we live in the uh, you know we're going to talk about it the the already and the not yet where there is a a fulfillment that is coming at the end of history and all those things and so there's nuances in in, in each of those views so I don't want to be overly simplistic but uh, just for our discussion the first thing that we got to be clear on is that nobody nobody comes to these texts without presuppositions uh, the person who doesn't think he has a presupposition is the person who is most enslaved by his presupposition uh, so what we need to do is to we need to read these texts the way that it would have been understood by Zechariah himself and also the first recipients who actually read the book um, that is that's the way we should read any book uh, you don't uh, you don't pick up a uh, you know, whatever a, a history book or, or a novel or a, a book of poetry or whatever you, you read them based on what type of literature it is, what the author's intent was. You, you you read books that way, and although God's book is inspired and it's living and it's uh, it's uh, inerrant, and we're still going to read it, we're going to read it with uh, authorial intent in mind. But that being said, I don't think that you can lay the Bible being one whole book. You know, it's it's comprised of 66 books, but it's actually one big story. Um, the Bible being the way that it is, I don't think that we can lay aside the fact that many of the texts that we're going to see in chapters 9 through 12 of Zechariah are interpreted by the New Testament authors. Uh, and so whatever you or, or I might think or expect when we read these texts, we, we need to give the inspired authors of Scripture uh, who interpreted these texts a higher level of authority than our own presuppositions. What I mean by that is we're going to see in, in this chapter specifically um, – it's going to be talking about the coming of a king and uh, the divine warrior that comes and, and and brings victory to his people and we're going to see we're going to see um, levels of fulfillment we're going to see that there was a immediate fulfillment to the people that were actually hearing this prophecy spoken for the first time and, and there was a level of fulfillment as uh, this this king is going to it's going to say in, in chapter nine here that the king is going to come and 
with all this power and all this victory and all this whatever, but he's going to be humble and riding on a donkey. And that verse is taken by the New Testament authors and applied directly and uh, irrefutably to Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. So the New Testament authors take that as the fulfillment of this victory that Zechariah is pronouncing. But then again, there's also a level of fulfillment that hasn't occurred yet. We are not living in perfect victory yet. Although we are in victory, we are, you know, those of us who are in Christ are redeemed uh, and nothing can separate us and we have been given all things in Christ and and all those things. We still live in a fallen world. We still live in this flesh. So we we have to balance all of these things. Uh, We have to balance uh, what it's saying to us as we read it, and we have to read it with an eye to the fact that it is apocalyptic literature. It is filled with, uh, just like all apocalyptic literature of the time, it's filled with symbolism, it's filled with word pictures and illusions, and it's uh, it's almost, I don't like using this, this phrase, but it's almost like the prophecies that are going to be uh, enumerated here from really chapter 9 is, is a little separate. It's usually chapter 10 through 12 that we focus on when we talk about apocalyptic literature but um the what we're going to see is that it's almost like he's bouncing around you he's bouncing around from uh telling us about the fulfillment the victory that we have and the perfect victory that we're going to receive but the victory that we already have and the judgment that's going to come on god's enemies as they were rebuilding the city but it also points to the the final judgment that's going to be at the end and so we have to keep an eye to all these things now all that being said this particular chapter is it's rich in terms of historical content and the promises that it makes to God's people. The the prophecies here tell of uh, you know their coming judgment for the enemies of God's people and ultimate victory and restoration for the remnant of God's people. And we've seen these same things before in Zechariah, but here God starts getting specific with the judgments judgments and the, and the promises that he offers. Um, there is a very real sense in which the prophecies of this chapter point to a particular historical period when uh, the initial judgments actually took place. And, and we're going to look at that when we get to them. But we got to remember there's also a sense in which these texts point forward to both the inauguration of God's kingdom. That's when uh, Jesus was uh, Jesus came to earth and died on a cross and was resurrected. And uh, the gospel goes forth. Uh, as well as the ultimate fulfillment of all things when the kingdom is is consummated and Christ returns you know to redeem creation from the curse of the fall um we have to remember as we're working our way through these last chapters of Zechariah that we are not reading historical narrative here. We are reading prophecy. We're reading apocalyptic literature, which, like I said, is full of imagery and illusion to different points of fulfillment throughout time. So we can't just read these texts as if we are reading through a newspaper article about an event or something like that. Uh, biblical prophecy doesn't doesn't work that way. And if you try to read bif- biblical prophecy, prophecy with a newspaper in your hand saying well this is this is this and and see look this is that and and he's trying to connect the dots you're going to come up with some very 
erroneous conclusions you're going to come up there's no end to the wackiness that has uh, uh, been produced uh, as far as end times speculations and way that we uh, read prophecy and all those kind of things the Bible interprets itself we don't use the newspaper uh, or in the same way let me be fair we can't use a history book and, and try to interpret these Bible prophecies uh, we can't look back in the past and say well this is that this is this although we can see fulfillment both in the past and we can see fulfillment in Christ and we look to the future for a perfect fulfillment um, we we can't just read the text as if we're reading um uh, a narrative uh, like Zechariah is not giving us a news report about you know what will come to pass. He is giving promises and he is giving judgments of God. He is giving uh, things that we're supposed to hold on to, and they were real and pertinent for the people who actually heard them as they were rebuilding the city. They're real. They were real and pertinent when the New Testament authors quoted them to the people who lived in the first century, and they're real and they're pertinent to us who are living now and reading God's word. So at any time, that's the that's the the matrix that I usually use. Um, if if your interpretation of these texts um, uh, discounts any meaning for any one of those groups, then it's probably not correct. Um, for instance, if if I relegate all these things to you know the future in time whatever it would have had no meaning to the people that actually heard it you know in 500 whatever bc that it was written uh they you know yay i mean we're here and we're surrounded by enemies and we're building god's house and we're doing all these things and thank you for telling me that four thousand years from now everything's going to be okay it would have had no meaning for them but in the same way if it's just in the past if it just happened for their benefit to comfort them and to tell them hey don't worry about these cities that are uh, plaguing you and attacking you i'm going to take care of those and then god did and we're going to see that there's a a direct line of fulfillment as uh, as we look at alexander the great's campaigns as he came down through there uh, if that's only what it is then it holds no meaning for us uh, other than just you know yay god protected those people way back then you know it has no meaning for us but we're going to see that there's levels there's levels i don't want to say levels of meaning because that's that's so uh neo-orthodox but uh there is uh levels of fulfillment i should say uh it uh he he tells of a time that was specific to the people that were listening but he also points forward to a time that uh, culminates in the end of history when all things are sewn up and all his prophecies all his promises and all his judgments are complete so what we're going to find here, and I love this this aspect of this chapter. This chapter is really amazing. Uh, the judgments described here against 
the enemies of God's people, uh, they find a direct fulfillment in the conquests of Alexander the Great. And to be honest, that that really excites me because, you know, we can look back and follow the path of his conquest through Palestine and the surrounding regions, and you can see how God's foretelling of judgment almost mirrors the destruction and the conquering campaign that that Alexander uh, did. But you can't just say, uh, you know, you can't just say that that is the complete fulfillment. You know, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, I find it amazing that God used this pagan Macedonian king, uh, Alexander, to bring judgment against his enemies. But as we move into the second part of the chapter, we're going to read about the might of this conquering king as he comes to his people and gives them redemption and victory. And it's going to be a divine warrior that comes to, to aid his people and to bring peace to his people. And this is a foretelling of what Jesus brought. It's a it's pointing forward to what who Christ is and what he did. Um, uh, who is this perfect king, you know, who... who who is he if he's if it's not Alexander because he didn't bring perfect redemption and victory he didn't bring peace to the you know and so you can't just bottle the you can't just bottle biblical prophecy up and say this is that it has it has meaning and fulfillment and it's pointing toward uh, direct events that were affecting the people at the time but it's also pointing forward to the culmination of all these events at, at the end um, so. This is, uh, you know, it's also the text that prophesies uh, that Jesus, you know, this king that we're going to look at. And, man, I haven't even read a verse yet. I'm sorry. But this king that we're going to look at that's going to come to his people and bring peace and and all these things, he's going to uh, he's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's going to be humble. And, and this is the verse that's quoted by the New Testament authors as directly applying to Jesus entering into the city. Uh, so we can't just say, well, this is all about Alexander's conquest. No, it's not, because it also points to the fulfillment that we have when Christ came and died for our sins. But, and here's another button, I hate to keep throwing contingencies in, but there's also a sense in which this full and final victory, which is prophesied about, is not yet here, uh, even today. But it will be when all things are co- consummated. The prophet is giving God's word and his prophecy, but it seems like he's telescoping the events so that it bounces back and forth from the already and the not yet. If you if you listen to the previous chapters, uh, you, you remember that we talked about uh, how we live in the already and the not yet Already the kingdom has come, and already we have perfect redemption, salvation, victory, etc., etc. But we also live in the not yet. The kingdom is not yet fully realized in creation. We still live in fallen world. We still have enemies to fight, you know, namely the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we need to keep all this in mind. Biblical prophecy is ancient apocalyptic literature, which must uh, must be read as such. We can't read foretelling prophecy in the same way that we read uh, hysterical hysterical historical narrative or or poetry or something like that so um if i keep going this way we probably won't get done with chapter nine so we'll just see how it goes and see what happens uh the first two verses read 
The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Uh, first, well, what we're seeing here is the Lord is pronouncing judgment on, on his enemies. Uh, the cities that are mentioned here represent the, the nations which were causing Israel the most trouble at the time um, uh, at the time Hadrach was it was under Persian rule all these cities to the north these cities that we we read about here in these first two verses Hamath Hadrach Damascus Tyre Sidon uh, these were uh, to the north of Jerusalem and they were uh, under the control of uh, under the control of uh, of Persia and so Hadrach was under Persian rule and at the time uh, Damascus is the capital of Syria. Tyre and Sidon were part of Phoenicia, uh, and and later on in the in the next verses, I think five six, uh, we're going to see that God goes south of Jerusalem also, and also pronounces judgment on the cities that were uh, part of the uh, Philistia, you know, Philistines, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod. We're going to see those um, after we get through with this section. But right now, he's focused on the cities to the north: Hadrach, Hamath, Damascus, Tyre, Sidon. These represent the interior of the north, and Damascus uh, is cast as the place of political power. And uh, Tyre and Sidon were both coastal cities to the to the north northwest of uh, of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So, the original readers of this text would have known that God is listing those regions and cities that are the strongest and most annoying enemies of Israel at the time. He makes sure to tell them that the Lord, the oracle of the Lord, is against them, uh, and He has His eye on all mankind and sees what is going on. He knows uh, what Israel is uh, that they're being oppressed and and he's not falling asleep. He's not without strength to save them. Uh, Zechariah begins his chapter by showing that the Lord is coming against those who come against his people. And it's so interesting that as we look at these judgments from uh, you know the the Persian ruled cities down down the coastline through Philistia and down through Gaza and Ashdod, Ashkelon, those cities that we're going to get to in a minute. Um, it's amazing to see that the judgments pronounced and even the order in which they are pronounced follow the route of Alexander's conquest. Uh, through the region, you know, it's 150, 200 years later. Uh, Richard Phillips said this is a quote from from his book. He says, The judgment proceeds to work its way south along the invasion route toward one Persian possession after another, from Damascus to Hamath, and then to Tyre, along the Phoenician coast, and then down the cities of Philistia, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod. Um, but... Uh, the first the, the the prophet singles out Tyre. Uh, he he wants us to look at Tyre in verses three and four, uh, and there's a reason for that. I'll tell you. Tyre uh, has this is verse three. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea and she shall be devoured by fire now the reason that tyre is um is singled out is because tyre was a fortress 
city. Uh, it was a city that was on an island, actually, about a half mile off the coast, uh, and, and it had 150-foot walls. Uh, it was virtually impregnable. I mean, it was it was a fortress of all fortresses, and it was a the the, the main trade through the city was shipping it was uh it was a coastal city it was out out on an island so the the way that uh things came and went were were by shipping and so all their riches all their power all that was was dependent upon the sea and so for conquering nations to come and try to take tyre uh it proved to be very very difficult uh uh shalmaneser of assyria he besieged the the city for five years uh, and failed to conquer it. When you besiege a city, remember, you you surround the city and just try to cut off uh, all the supplies and all that. Well, Tyre had access to the sea. So, I mean, how do you, without without a navy, you, you, you're going to have to, you know, they're going to be bringing, bringing in stuff and, and, and taking out stuff all they want to, and you're not going to be able to starve them out. You're not going to, if you can't breach the wall, you're just stuck. So when Assyria attacked the region, uh, they besieged Tyre for five years and and failed to conquer it. And never did conquer it. When uh, later on. Uh, early 6th century BC uh, Nebuchadnezzar also besieged the city this is uh, as he was coming you know and, and did his uh, uh, um, uh, siege against Jerusalem and all those things uh, he besieged Tyre as well and the city held out for 13 years for 13 years and it was never conquered can you imagine a city under siege for 13 years so Tyre was had grown to be um uh, what's the word? A little arrogant, you know. You'll never take this city. I mean, we're we're good. We we've got all the money. We've got all the riches. We've got it going on. And you know what? It, it you can bring your army all day long. You just sit right outside our 150 foot wall, and you just stay there. And we'll trade, and we'll bring in food, and we'll do whatever we want to by the sea. Uh, and we're not going to worry about it. And so. They uh, they were extremely rich because of the, their stability uh, and the location. It says they, they piled up silver like dust and piled up gold like uh, the uh, mire of the streets, the mud in the streets. Um, but God says in verse 4 that Tyre will be destroyed in judgment. Her wealth will be cast into the sea is what he said. She'll be consumed by fire. And what we see is that is exactly exactly what happened when uh, Alexander the Great came down through from Macedonia through that region before he headed off into Persia. Uh, his conquest is very, if you've never studied the, the tactics and the, uh, the plan of Alexander the Great and the Macedonian army, it is so interesting. He took, he left Macedon with 50,000 men and was gone for 10 years and conquered more of the known world than anyone before him it was he got all the way to india before he uh his men said you know we're not going any further and they they turned around and had to come home and he of course he never made it home he died in in babylon but um what's interesting is before he headed off into persia to conquer persia he he 
he took his army and went down the coast uh, through uh, Palestine and down into Egypt, uh, and he did that to uh, you know it's different. These this is kind of historical opinion that I'm giving you now, but he did that to solidify his backside. So when he marched off into into Persia, nobody would come up behind him, you know, and 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 attack and everything. But when he came to Tyre, this city that um, no one had ever destroyed no one had ever defeated uh, no one could breach the walls no one could uh, you know enter the city Nebuchadnezzar failed uh, Shalmaneser failed uh, and, and so all the it was impregnable they they pretty much scoffed at Alexander said we're not you know whatever you just sit out outside the wall like everybody else has well what Alexander did was he built a massive causeway from the shore to the island he used you know like stones and wood and rubble from uh, from the old city that was that was there on the mainland uh, to create uh, like a land bridge it was a half mile long land bridge and so the the city that was impregnable and had lasted 13 years under Nebuchadnezzar's siege it fell to Alexander in seven months uh, and this prophecy was fulfilled her wealth was taken and the cons- the city was most certainly consumed by fire and it's interesting that uh, this also fulfilled the prophecy that we see in Ezekiel uh, 26 um concerning Tyre it says you know he, he told Tyre that, you know they're going to break down your walls and destroy your houses and your stones and your timber and your soil will be cast into the waters and I'll I will make you a bare rock and if you today is a it's a it's still there the ruins of it are still there and if you'll go and look uh on the internet i guess uh google earth you know they got google earth alexander's causeway is still there uh now it's covered with sand now it's not it's not bricks and stone and all those kind of things it's it looks like a big sandbar but it that was the that was the causeway that Alexander built in order to get his army over to over to that uh, over to the city, and so uh, God prophesied here two hundred years, one hundred fifty, two hundred years before it happened that Tyre has they've done built themselves a fortress, and they think that they're they're secure and they're troubling you, uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna strip her of her possessions. I'm gonna I'm gonna strike down her power in the sea. That's in verse four. And this city's going to be uh, devoured by fire, and so it's amazing that it. it, it I mean, when you follow um, the conquest, Alexander didn't just stop entire either; he kept going down. And so we see in verse uh, in verse five, as we read in Zechariah chapter nine, it says, "Ashkelon shall see it." These are cities that are a little further south. Ashkelon shall, shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hope are conf- uh, hopes are confounded. When Alexander started tromping down through uh, Palestine, oh. It, it shook the foundations of uh, of all these cities. They were terrified. I mean, this city that had not fallen in 13 years under siege under the great conqueror Nebuchadnezzar, who destroyed Jerusalem, uh, fell in seven months under Alexander and, and his army. Uh, and so the, it, it struck fear in the hearts of all of these people. The uh, verse five, the rest of verse five says, "The king shall perish from Gaza; Ashkelon shall be uninhabited." Uh, 
of mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. Philistia was the region, the region of Philistines. Uh, they were terrified. Uh, and it says that here that the Philistines will be removed. Uh, the cities will be uninhabited. The, the cities will suffer under God's judgment. Uh, and, and that's exactly what we, what we see. Um, Alexander came down and it's so interesting that he came he came down the down the coast conquering all these cities he conquered of course gaza and all, all the way down to egypt uh but he passed by jerusalem uh on the first way down and on his way back back up the coast he came to jerusalem and there's a lot of myths there's a lot of legends there's a lot of josephus the historian says that uh the high priest met alexander at the gate of jerusalem and he brought him into the temple and showed him the prophecies of of himself in daniel and there's a lot of that that we can't really corroborate or anything like that but what we do know is that Alexander was destroying cities as he went down the coast, uh, and then of course he went to Egypt and he uh, uh, he, he he spent a lot of time in Egypt and uh, fell in love with the place. But uh, when he come ba- when he came back through, he did not he did not destroy Jerusalem. He did not conquer Jerusalem. He didn't uh, he didn't destroy the city. He didn't siege the city. Uh, he didn't he didn't do any of these things. And so. When it says, this is God pronouncing judgment still, he's saying, um, where were we? Ashkelon. Yeah, Ashkelon, Ekron. Mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. Uh, that's talking about, uh, you know, it's an um, abomination for uh, God's people to eat anything with the blood in it. But the, the it's talking about the, the Philistine uh, idolatry and their... Uh, uh, rejection of God's law and their practices of pagan you know whatever and so he's going to say I'm going to I'm going to remove those things I'm going to destroy these these cities I'm going to I'm going to uh, bring judgment upon these people and it's so interesting that God used this pagan king Alexander to to uh, to uh, to fulfill these judgments, um, but here it, when we get to chapter verse seven, there's something very interesting here. As we're about to transition to, uh, we're talking about uh, God bringing His judgment, and then we're going to transition into the coming of the divine warrior, the the King that's going to bring victory and peace. Uh, but in, in verse seven. Uh, it says, and it's very interesting, it says, uh, the second part of verse 7 says, It too, he's talking about Philistia, uh, it too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Now, the Jebusites were the people who lived uh, in Jerusalem before David conquered it before it was Jerusalem uh, the Jebusites were the ones inhabiting Jerusalem so what he's saying what he's saying here is that the Philistines the nations if you will will be converted to God uh, God will remove the blood from their mouth he'll remove the idolatry the detestable things from their teeth you know eating sacrifices to idols you know, defile foods idol worship those kind of things I'll remove all those things and he says in essence, he says, I'm going to convert them. I'm going to convert them to the faith. They will become part of the remnant. It says, it too, talking about Philistia, 
it too shall be a remnant for our God. It'll be a remnant for our God. And it even says they will be a clan in Judah. Ekron will be like a Jebusite. He's talking about he's talking about not just uh, raining judgments of fire down upon these people, but he's talking about when when judgment fully takes place, when judgment and redemption go forth. And he's going to tell us about redemption and victory in a moment. When when all that goes forth, I'm going to bring these nations into my people. I'm going to bring these nations in the the Philistines, if if you will, are going to be just like a clan in Judah. Uh, and Ekron, which was another Philistine city, um, they're going to be like the people uh, of the Jebusites that David uh, conquered and, and it, you know, eventually converted into into uh, into Jews. Um, and it says, verse eight says, it gives us a transition between destruction and judgment to promise. It says, I will encamp at my house. As a guard, so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor, no oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes that God will encamp around His house. Uh, it says because of an army that passes uh, by and returns, and none shall march to and fro. Uh, man, that alexander conquered cities down the coast of mediterranean all the way to egypt and came back to jerusalem but he didn't attack the city he passed by and then came back through marched to and fro but it says no oppressor no oppressor shall march over them now god watched over his people as that judgment was taking place um but like again we also need to make sure that we look that cannot be the final fulfillment. It cannot be the ultimate fulfillment because we know for a fact that oppressors did once again march over them, even after, uh, you know, after uh, the Greeks had been in control for uh, uh, many years. The Romans came and. You know, I think it was Pompey who who came and conquered Jerusalem and the and the cities surrounding. And so there were oppressors. There were oppressors that even came afterward. But here we get to uh, the the victory and the promise of the the prophecies that Zechariah is given. And in verse nine and ten, it says it's almost like a new section start. It says, "Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem!" Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Um, God's people, he says, to rejoice in the king's coming. And we know that we know that this king is not is not Alexander. It is a divine king. He says, your king is coming to you. He is the king that holds righteousness and salvation. He is uh, the great divine warrior that's going to come and and conquer. Uh, but they can rejoice in the fact that he is coming. Uh, the king, he brings justice and, and, and salvation. He, he, he brings grace. And, and judgment and the the amazing thing is that he comes humbly instead of with you know regal pomp and all those things he brings he brings peace with him he comes humbly if this foretells jesus coming into jerusalem this is um this is uh, 
what the uh, the the New Testament the New Testament authors uh, quote this this particular verse uh, explicitly. Um, I think it's Matthew chapter eleven. Let me look, Matthew. No, it's not Matthew chapter eleven. Uh, it is Matthew chapter twenty one. Yes, it says, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, a donkey, in the colt of a fold of an ass. He he quotes, Matthew quotes this verse uh, as referring to Jesus and Jesus coming into the the city. Um, and he's telling the people, now remember what the people hearing the prophecy would have thought. The people hearing, there's a king coming, a king that's going to come and bring righteousness and salvation. He's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to he's going to do all these things and and free us from oppression and 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 he's going to be riding in on a donkey. And the Matthew, when he specifically takes this verse, I mean, he specifically cites this verse and applies it to Jesus as he is coming into as he is coming into the uh, the city of Jerusalem. He applies it to him and saying, "You know what? Rejoice!" And so, and we know that the people were they were laying down palm leaves and rejoicing, saying, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and he's going to bring he's going to bring peace." In verse ten. Uh, this king, when he comes, he's going to bring peace. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Ephraim was another uh, term for the northern kingdom of Israel. So uh, remember when the kingdom split, you had Israel in the north, you had Judah in the south. Ephraim is another name for Israel. And the war horse from Jerusalem, Jerusalem's capital of Judah, which was in the south. So you have both the north and the south uh, of the the kingdom there. I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so when you see, when we see this, we see, look. The king brings peace. This king that's going to be riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, he is going to bring peace to the nations. He's going to speak peace to the nation, and he is going to rule. He's going to rule from one sea to the next. He's going to rule uh, from the river to the ends of the earth. He's going to rule over over all things. And so what we see here is that he does, in fact, bring peace. He brings peace uh, with a, the, no, no more need for chariots and horses no more need for war bows uh there will be peace uh not just peace for god's people but peace for all the nations peace with god the 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 peace that christ brings is uh is uh perfectly described and and most often uh most applicable to the fact that we have peace with god those of us who those of us who are 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 not in christ are enemies of god even though you know we may be very religious uh but god has made peace with us through this king that he sent he has made peace with us through his son that he has sent and he says here in the in the bottom part of chapter uh, verse 10 that he will rule he's going to rule from sea to sea and we see listen the kingdom of god is here the kingdom of god is here right now in the gospel as it's going forth bringing peace to the nations but we also see that the kingdom of god is not 
consummated. It is not fulfilled. It's not here in its perfect state. It is, uh, we are waiting for the consummation of all things. We're waiting for uh, the, uh, the, the Lord to return. And so, he says he's going to he's going to rule and this is what he says to his people in verse 11 he says as for you also because of the blood of my covenant um with you i will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit return to your stronghold o prisoners of hope today i declare that i will restore you Double now. Imagine the people think hearing this. Uh, there, there, there's a king that's coming. He's going to be powerful. He's going to be ruler of all the earth, and he's going to ride into your city on a donkey. He's going to be humble and meek, and he is going to bring freedom and restoration with him when he comes. He says the prisoners, the prisoners will be set free by the blood of his covenant because of the blood of my covenant with you. I'm going to set the prisoners free from the waterless pit uh, where it's dry and there's no, uh, there's no. Uh, refreshment there's no uh there's no abundance uh, he says return to god and you can find restoration return to the stronghold he's talking about god here he's talking about the taking refuge in himself return he he's not talking about hiding yourself behind walls of a city return to your stronghold o prisoners of hope uh, now understand you can see the already and the not yet in in the very language that he uses. He's saying people return to your stronghold and he calls them prisoners of hope. Prisoners of hope, you know, even though now uh, we are in this world, even though now it seems like Tyre and Sidon and Hamath and all these are, are against you and there's going to be, you know, there's war and oppression and all those things and it just seems like you're a prisoner to this fallen age and this fallen world, uh, you have a hope. Prisoners of hope, you return to your stronghold. God will restore you double. To those who return to him. And he's not just talking about money and, and all those kind of things. He's talking about he's talking about freedom and restoration and victory. And he's talking about redemption. He's talking about uh, all of those things. He says, uh, I'm going to use you. I'm going to return to me and I will use you as my instruments. I will use you as my instruments against the nations. I'll use you against uh, my, uh, my enemies. Uh, it says, verse 13 says, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. Remember, Ephraim and Judah are the north and the south kingdom. He says, I will stir you, O, o I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your son, O Greece, and will and wield you like a warrior's sword. Now the word Greece there is is actually Javan, and we see that uh that's Javan was uh, uh, one of the the men mentioned that spread out in in uh, Genesis uh, chapter ten, I think it was, and it was talking about he went to the islands of Greece. So the the translators supply that term, so you know who we're talking about. Uh, he's talking about the the Greeks. He's talking about the the Greek islands, and of course we've seen earlier that it was the Greek Alexander. Uh, uh, not technically, I guess he was Greek by this time because. 
because he had conquered Greece, uh, but he he was he he spread Greek culture, he spread Greek influence in all over the world, all over the known world, and it was he the the conqueror who was coming through and marching through this this kingdom. But here God says, "I have bent my I've bent Judah as Judah is my bow, Ephraim is my arrow." He said, "My people are going to be I'm, they're going to be my instruments that I'm going to use to conquer. I'm going to I'm going to make a leap here, but." I'm going to send my king into the city riding on a donkey and he's going to bring freedom and restoration and then I'm going to use my people as my instruments to conquer to go out and to conquer the nations. I mean, what does that say to you as a person who is steeped in the New Testament and how the New Testament authors applied these prophecies to them? Uh, what does that say to you? It's it's talking about the coming of the kingdom in Jesus as he died on the cross, was raised from the dead, and then the Spirit of God came, the commission went forth, and God's people were spread to the ends of the earth to go and to preach the gospel, to baptize in the name of the Father. Son, the Holy Ghost, and to and to uh, uh, spread the gospel. It's the Great Commission, and finally, the last section, verses fourteen through seventeen. What we're going to see, what we're going to see here, is that uh, uh, it, it, it's talking about the God will use His people to fight the same thing that we saw before. But it says, then the Lord will appear over them, and His arrows will go forth like lightning. Now, who? What are the arrows? What are the arrows? He said just earlier, he said, I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. He says, then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. And so what we see is God is going to use his people. God's going to use. He gives us this this warrior imagery that he is uh, he's going forth to conquer. He is going forth to conquer and he is using his people as his weapons. He is he is sounding the trumpet. And he's marching forth into the south, which is uh, the we have the idea of the 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 nations, God's enemies, the uh, the the people that are against God. He's marching into these lands, these pagan nations. He's marching into them with his army. He's going forth to conquer, and he is bringing it's it's he's bringing his people as his as his instruments to conquer those. It's the gospel that goes forth, the gospel that goes forth, and it makes remember when it said i will convert uh the philistines i will i will make them like a clan in judah he's going forth to bring the remnant in of his people and so what we see is the perfect vision of of redemption and the gospel going forth and then he he says look i'm not we're not just going to go marching out uh, with uh, conquering and to conquer, I'm going to fill you. I'm going to fill you with victory. I'm going to fill you with peace. I'm going to fill you with uh, with redemption. Uh, verse 15 says, The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, uh, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. He said, I'm going to fill you uh, I'm going to defend you. I'm going to fill you with rejoicing and victory. You'll want for nothing. You'll have everything that you'll you could ever want. And of course, we're talking about we're talking about spiritually speaking. We're not talking about hey, God's going to give you a limo and a new house. 
and all that kind of stuff. He's saying, look, I'm going to save y'all. I'm going to save you. On that day, verse 16, the Lord, their God, will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. God, he's going to make his people a treasure. He's going to save them, make his people his treasure. For like jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. And then the final verse says, for how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty grain shall be grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women his flock is is going to be beautiful in his sight and they are going to flourish it says how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty uh they are going to uh, they're going to prosper in uh, the protection of God. They're going to prosper in the service of God, and they're going to be protected and saved. And so, as we, it was necessary to to make sure that you understand as we move into chapter ten that chapter nine, ten, eleven, and twelve are going to all connect as they talk about. Um, they're going to bounce back and forth from. Uh, the uh, the coming of Christ uh, to die and to bring victory and conquer that way, and they're going to uh, telescope that with the the coming of Christ to uh, to wrap all things up to at the end of history to redeem the creation and to and to uh, culminate all things in the kingdom of God, and so. It was necessary just to get a, a little taste of that here. As we see, um, it seems like the people that he was writing to, he was writing to, he was he was foretelling the judgment that God would bring as he brought that pagan Alexander down through uh, down through the the cities that were against Jerusalem and destroyed them and conquered them. But he also foretells that there's a king coming, uh, and this king is going to bring redemption with him he's going to bring victory with him and he's going to send you out to conquer he's going to send you out you're going to be his arrow you're going to be his bow you're going to be his instrument and he is going to conquer uh, through his people and he is going to convert the heathen convert the nations convert those that don't know him and so you can't you can't really get a better picture of of the gospel here and so as we here are living you know, in the New Testament age, uh, having the entire canon of Scripture at our fingertips, um, as we here are are living in this, it's easy for us to lose sight of of our focus. It's easy for us to lose sight of what what it is that God has called us to do. Uh, we are now living in this time that God is sending forth the gospel. He's sending forth the conquering agent, the, the thing that is going to conquer men's hearts and bring them into the kingdom of God. He's sending forth right now the thing that is going to uh, that is going to change people's hearts, uh, making taking them from enemies of God, making them sons and daughters of God. He is going forth now conquering. He sounded the trumpet and he's marching with his people. And they, Jesus said that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail uh, against uh, against his church. And so it's easy for us to lose focus as we uh, get caught up in our own lives and caught up in our own th- events, you know, things. I got bills to pay. I got to go to work. I got, you know, this and that. Uh, it's easy for us to lose focus and realize that the purpose of 
the purpose of our lives here, the the reason that God has you here, the reason that you are uh, his child, the reason that he has brought you to this place at this time is so that you would be a witness for him, that the gospel would go forth through you. Doesn't mean you have to stand up on a in a pulpit and, and preach, but it means that you shine the light of Christ in whatever venue that he has you in. And God is conquering uh, through that gospel. Paul said that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. You have the power of God to change somebody's heart in you. It's not your power. It's not something you do. It's in the message that we bring. Jesus Christ, uh, who is King of kings, Lord of lords, ruler of heaven and earth, all authorities given unto him, uh, he, he came humbly and rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, gave his life, died for sin, and was raised from the dead by the Father to prove that his uh, sacrifice was accepted. We have that message. We have that commission. And it's ours to go and conquer with.